One of the things that we love about movies, um, at least one, one genre of movie that we love in America and every country, we, we, we love the inspirational kind of story where there's the hero or, there, or there's the heroine, where they're against all odds, they're the overcomers, and everyone's against them, or someone is against them, there's the antagonist, and no matter what, they somehow rise above, and they conquer, and they overcome, and there's something about those kind of stories that I love. That's why they're blockbusters. It's why they, they can even have a huge impact on our life. I think about growing up watching some of these movies and they, they would motivate me for athletics or they would motivate, motivate me for all kinds of things. Um, there's just something about that. And we identify with this hero or heroine, which is all fine and good. And the Bible tells a similar kind of story. Against all odds, everything all strikes against, and yet there is victory. The problem is when we start somehow thinking that we see Jesus as the one who did these things, and he did, but then we fall into that typical mindset of, well, then, then that inspires me and the intention, we misread the intention, and we see the intention as that's what it's meant to do. And if I could just be more like Jesus, the one who overcame, and if I could just be more like Jesus, the one who was opposed, and yet he proved victorious in the end, if I can just be like that, everything will be okay. And what ends up happening is, even though he is the hero, even though he is the against all odds victor, he's the hero of the story, of the drama, absolutely, and it makes it an awesome story, the story of all stories. We end up misreading it. So one great thing about studying books of the Bible is that we see things as they're supposed to be. And it, it sort of puts us in our place in a good way. So right now as a church, we're studying the gospel of Jesus according to John. We're in the fourth chapter. You can turn there now if you'd like to. And what we're, what we're being reminded of is Jesus is awesome. We're going to even hear today, he's the savior of the world. It doesn't get better than that. He is the hero. It's inspiring. It's extraordinary. Story of all stories. We're drawn to him. But the people who represent us in the story are people like Nicodemus in chapter 3. The guy who's part of the right religion. He's got the right holy book and doesn't understand a thing about eternal life. He needs Jesus. He needs Jesus to rescue him, not just inspire him. Okay? Then, the opposite end of the spectrum, so Nicodemus, the guy who's moral, the guy who knows everything, supposedly, and knows nothing, the guy who's part of the right religion, then the opposite end of the spectrum, and I think it covers everything in between, but I love it that we see all these different kinds of people that we're supposed to identify with. That opposite end of the spectrum would be the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well who we've heard about just now in the song. The woman at the well, she's part of the one of the wrong religions. She's part of a, a cultic offshoot from Judaism. And she's very immoral. Okay? And she, too, 
needs Jesus. Not just to inspire her to overcome difficulties in life against all odds. No, she needs Jesus to rescue her. She needs Jesus to forgive her. She needs Jesus to restore her. She needs Him as a Savior. So I love it that we're seeing these kinds of people. These won't be the only two people we see. But it's great for us to realize, indeed, it's a great story. It's an awesome story. But the ones we have to identify with first and foremost with would be the the Nicodemuses. We think we're okay because we're part of the right religion. Or the Samaritan women or woman and then the Samaritans. They're actually part of the wrong religion. And they're involved in all sorts of immorality and they need Jesus also. He's the Savior of all those kinds of people. Now, there's more to be said about that. Of course, that's what preachers say. But there's more to be said about Jesus and how we view him, but I want to save it for the end. Okay? So, don't let me forget at the end to say something. I'm only giving you the right part of the... I'm giving you the right thing to emphasize. I'm confident of that. But there's more to be said with how we identify with Jesus. But let's make sure we remember we must see him not as one of us first, but as the one who's come from the outside to rescue us. Okay? But there's more that must be said about it. We'll save it for the end. Okay? So, John chapter 4. And we began looking at this last week. We're going to continue today. If you weren't with us last week, you'll be able to catch on rather quickly. I'm rather confident. And we're going to pick it up this morning, beginning in verse 23. Uh, I should say that last time, as we worked our way through the first 22 verses, as we would go, we, we would pause now and then and say, let's pause and let's acknowledge something extraordinary about Jesus that we've learned. Okay? Some, some of these striking things about Jesus that are worth noticing. And so we did that last time along the way. We looked at eight of these striking realities. And so I'm going to pick that up this morning. We'll work our way through some of the text, and then we'll pause and say, there are some striking realities we need to acknowledge here. But my numbering will start with number nine this morning because we looked at the first 22 verses last time, and we looked at eight of them. Okay? All right, Samaritan woman, part two, if you will. Woman at the well, part two, beginning in verse 23. Look there, if you would, with me. But the hour is coming, Jesus says to this Samaritan woman. The hour is coming. We saw last time Jesus uses the hour to to describe a specific time. When he says things like, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about the specific time unique time when he is going to go to the cross or when he's going to be raised from the dead or when he's going to be glorified. It's talking about that, that, that climactic high point of his redeeming work. Okay? Hour is used as a technical title by Jesus to talk about what he's going to do to, to bring salvation. And so no doubt here, knowing that he uses it that way, I want to read it that way, but the hour is coming. That special, unique, redemptive work of Jesus' time. The hour is coming and, notice what it says in verse 23, and is now here. Why would he say that? He would say that because, because he's on the scene. 
He, he's come to earth. The hour is coming and is now here. It's on the brink of happening. His work is unfolding. It doesn't come to, to the point of being climactic yet because that'll happen at the cross, resurrection, glorification. But, but, but it's as if it's here because it's on the brink of happening. This is, this, this is special, timely, extraordinary. It's now here, he says to the woman at the well. Notice there, it says, when the true worshipers, and I promise to go faster later, but for now, and we're just, I have to review a little bit in here too, when the true worshipers, how about this, Samaritan woman, woman at the well, and Jesus, not the normal time of day when it's cool in the morning, cool late afternoon, but in the heat of the day as we saw last time, so there aren't a bunch of people around. This is this dram- dramatic interaction. A time is coming. No, a time now is when true worshipers will worship. Oh, that's important just to review from last time because the debate between the Samaritans and the Jews really would be a debate over worship. If you want to boil it all down, the big rub is a rub of worship. Because the Jews say, you worship God at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Okay? We know this because of David. We know this because of Solomon. It's the Solomonic Temple. So the Jews worship there. This is the appropriate place to do worship. Formal worship. Okay? That's the Jews. The Samaritans say, oh no, we don't think so. We worship at Mount Gerizim. Okay? Now we learned from Jesus last time in verse 22 that the Jews are right. Okay, the Samaritans just think of it as a cultic break-off. Okay, one other feature of conflict over worship, okay? You've got to have the right place, and the Samaritans have the wrong place. But things are a change in. Okay? Hour is coming, and now is. You want to talk about true worship? Oh, there's another point of conflict when it comes to worship. The Jews believe the Old Testament in its entirety to be authoritative when it comes to God's revelation of himself. You want to know God? You better read the book, or you can't know God. Okay? Samaritans only believed in the first five books. They rejected everything that came after, and they did so after the fact. So there's a conflict. Now, based upon what Jesus says in 22, the the Jews are correct. But see, that creates a huge worship problem. Because if you have the fullness of God's revelation, all the Old Testament, you know lots of things about God. If you reject some of that, like the Samaritans, there are lots of things about God you don't know. And your view of God is left up to a significant amount, to your imagination and your authority because you've rejected God's revelation. And so that's why Jesus pretty harshly says, you worship what you don't know from last time. You worship in ignorance. That's a nice way of saying you're idolaters. False worship. So I've just chosen to do all of my review right here. Okay, but I think it's a good time because what we're seeing is here Jesus is engaging this woman and he's saying, but I want you to know things are changing. The conflict is going to be different. Okay, 
Yes, I just defended the Jews, but you know what? Things are really going to change. An hour is coming, and now is. It's on the brink of happening when true worshipers, which is what this whole debate is about. Oh, now let's keep going at verse 23. We'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. Lowercase s, most translations, and, and, and I think correctly. The time is coming when, when true worshipers, genuine, legitimate worshipers, will worship God in spirit. See, it's not a physical location. It's a spirit thing. Lowercase s. I think it's lowercase s because he's going to go on to say, we'll see in just a moment, that God is spirit. Okay, and he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. God is a spiritual being. He's not a physical being. So he's saying the time is coming when it's not going to be about Mount Zion anymore. And certainly it's not about Mount Gerizim because the Samaritans are actually wrong. But, but the debate is going to change because things are going to change. You must worship God in spirit. Oh, by the way, we know according to chapter 2, the temple is going to change because Jesus himself refers to himself as the ultimate temple. See, because of Jesus, because of his coming hour, he's the temple. He's where you go to meet with God. Okay, that's, what, that's what's happening. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. You've always needed to worship God in truth as God has revealed himself. Oh, remember, Jesus is going to show himself to be the ultimate revelation of God. To the point where Jesus will call himself the truth. Chapter 1 let, let us know that, that this is about God's ultimate, extraordinary revelation. It's in Jesus, His Son, the living Word. See, what Jesus is saying, it, it, it's going to all change because of me. This is exciting. I always think of that song, Ch-ch-ch-changes, right? <laughs> Sorry, I had to have my little David Bowie moment. Um, it's all changing. And by the way, it's changing not because, well, it, it, it's, it's in rejection to Samaritanism. Jesus acknowledged they're wrong. But with, with Judaism, it's changing, yes, but because we're progressing. All of this physical temple stuff was meant to be in anticipation so that Jesus would be the ultimate. So in that sense, it is changing, right? Fulfillment. Where in the world were we? Verse 23 still. We'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is... Oh, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say will be. The Father is. This is on the brink of happening to the point where the Father is doing this. Even now is seeking such people to worship Him. It's changed and is changing. This is what will please God. This is what will honor God. That's what the debate was over. And now we're going to see that it's going to be totally different. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship. Notice the must. Worship in spirit and truth. It's not going to be about location, but it certainly has to do with revelation. And Jesus is described throughout John as the ultimate revelation. Striking reality number nine might be your number one, um, but number nine for me, because this is part two, Jesus is the key to true worship. Jesus is the key to true worship. 
First and foremost, worship isn't about style. First and foremost, worship isn't about emotion, uh, though those things are good and fine in their place. Uh, first and foremost, worship isn't about a, a type of music. First and foremost, worship is about Jesus to the point where everything that's apart from him and not in and through him doesn't even qualify as worship. This is what the Father requires. Think about this. It's to see God for who He is, truth. And, and, and to, to understand His ways, truth. And to value Him for who He is and what He does. To see His worthiness. That's where we get our old English word, worthship. To see Him for who He is and what He does. And to see His worthiness and to acknowledge His worthiness appropriately. That's worship. And Jesus is making it clear it's not about this temple. It certainly isn't about that temple. It's about this temple. Trusting in me and honoring him. Jesus is the key to this. John chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus comes and Jesus came into this world to explain God to us. Worship is about knowing who God is. How can we know? Jesus came here to make it known, to make him known, not our imaginations. It's really quite staggering and astounding. All of this that's happening is extraordinary. But the way to worship God so that God will accept the worship is to know God through knowing Jesus. Lots more could be said about that, but we're going to move on to at least acknowledge another striking reality about Jesus. Number 10, Jesus is the key to truth. Jesus is the key to truth. We'll get to chapter 14, verse 6 later, but I want to preview it now. Chapter 3, let us know that Jesus, because he came from heaven, is eyewitness and gives eyewitness testimony and explains God to us. That's why I said the incarnation changes everything. Now we can know who God is and worship Him appropriately because we have eyewitness, credible testimony from heaven. Chapter 3. Maybe one more striking reality, number 11 on my list, and this is getting ahead of ourselves and maybe a little confusing. I apologize for that. I thought about skipping it, but then my numbering would be all messed up. Jesus is the key to the Spirit. Jesus is the key to the Spirit, and I mean capital S. We saw this in chapter 3. We'll see it again in chapter 7. We'll see it in chapter 14 and chapter 16. We would never receive the Holy Spirit apart from the work of Jesus. Okay? Okay? And we would never be able to truly worship God and know God and understand God and worship Him in lowercase s spirit if we didn't have the uppercase s spirit whom we would never have if we didn't have the Son. Confusing, I understand. But if we weren't just doing this chapter by chapter and we were doing it all together, I think we'd see it better. 
to worship God truly in spirit, because God is spirit, we must have the Holy Spirit. And to have the Holy, we would never, it'd be impossible to have the Holy Spirit if we didn't have the work of the Son. That's all I want to say by way of preview. Now let's move on to some new territory. Verse 25. I mean, just think about, isn't this great? This should be worship inducing. To to know these things about God. And to say, well, I see Him as even greater than I thought He was. And and this causes me to see His worthiness even better. And this, this this is worship. This is acknowledging His greatness. Acknowledging His love. Acknowledging His supremacy. How can we not be enthusiastic about that? Let's move on to new territory. Verse 25, the woman said to him, this is the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, from everything I read about Samaritans, could be wrong because it's not biblical, but from everything I read, I try to read pretty credible sources. Historically, the Samaritans don't talk about Messiah like the Jews do. They don't talk about the Christ like the Jews do. So isn't it interesting? Here, she seems to be experiencing some sort of change of mind, change of heart. I know that Messiah is coming. Seems like there's, there's, there's been a shift. There is a shift that's happening. I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just sounds cool. I don't know what the drama would feel like or look like, but I who speak to you am he. It sounds even cooler if we know how similar, if not the same, that sounds to a statement made in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 52. Remember Isaiah, you know, the 50s, they talk about Messiah. Isaiah 53 is the big standout one, and 54 and 52. Well, this sounds a lot like, if not identical to what Jesus, or excuse me, what Isaiah says regarding the Messiah. Isaiah 52, 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day, that is this coming messianic day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. If Jesus means for that to be the way he is sounding, and he may very well mean for that to be the way he is sounding, it sounds even cooler. I'm the one. I'm the long-awaited one. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the one who will provide perfect atonement. Striking reality number 12 on my list, Jesus is the long-awaited teller of all things. Jesus is the long-awaited teller of all things. Using her verbiage. 
By the way, he's the long-awaited teller of all things because he knows all things. She's already experienced the fact that he knows all things. Chapter 1 would teach us he knows all things. Chapter 3 would teach us he knows all things. I'm the one who will tell you all things. That's exciting. Let's move on. Now, wait a second. Just one more thing. I have this maybe bad habit, maybe good habit, but it's so affected me that I keep saying and keep thinking Jesus is even better than we thought he was because that's just the testimony of my life. The more I learn, the more I go, he's even better than I thought he was. If this woman comes from the Samaritan background, and she does, and they're not Messiah, big on Messiah talk, and here she is, I know Messiah is coming, the Christ, and, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. i got to say it again. Jesus is even better than she thought he was. Right? But she's coming to know the Messiah, the one that she didn't even think he was. Maybe that wasn't worth pausing for, but I thought it was. So let's keep going. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled. If you were an original language person, you'd see they're in a state of marveling. They keep on marveling. I don't know how long this went on, but this wasn't just a passing thing. That he was talking with a woman. Especially in context, a woman, yes, but a woman in Samaria. No one said. What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? But they're shocked. I'm tempted to say here's another striking reality about Jesus, but I didn't number it ahead of time and it would get all confusing. So number 28, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. Right? Right? Living water, what we learned about in the first half of this text. And Jesus provides that. And now she's at the point where she came for water and she looks at her water jar. jar. I'm reading into it a little bit. She looks at it, looks at Jesus, and leaves. I mean, go to the grocery store today, buy all of your groceries in the cart, look at your cart, having paid for them, and just walk out. I got bigger priorities. Right? She's got bigger priorities. Because Jesus is better than she thought he was. And so we walk out. Keep reading in verse 28. And went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She kind of sounds Jewish. How about a die-hard Jehovah's Witness while barging into Kingdom Hall today and saying, Jesus is God! I use that as an illustration because it, it, it's a total upsetting the apple cart, turn around, say what? From you of all people? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. And we're going to see that they're coming and they're believing in him. But we have a bit of, a, a, of an, an aversion, okay? So camera changes. We're going to move to a different focus just at least momentarily. Verse 31, meanwhile, 
the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Now, if you've been with us through John, you're already into, you already see that Jesus, you know, this is a telegraphed pass. You, you're already learning how Jesus operates, at least in John's gospel, in this record, where you already know to say, I don't think he's being literal. But the disciples aren't quite as quick on the uptake as you all are, because we know the whole story. He's not speaking literally. His intention is to be speaking figuratively, to make a literal point. He's done it with water. He's done it with a temple. He's done it on multiple other occasions. And now he's doing it with food. Notice verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Maybe a good way to say that is to, to, to explain it. That's a statement of priority. Just like you need physical food to live and survive, it's a priority to eat. Jesus is saying, my food, my sustenance, my priority, my, my, my ultimate priority, my food in that sense is to do my Father's will. It's more important. He's making a profound and big point. There, there's more to be said about verse 34 as it would relate to the relationship between the Father and the Son. This is worth doing because we want to know who God is so we can ascribe worth to Him and worthiness and worship Him. How about verse 34? My food is to do the will. So the Son is to do the will of Him who sent Him and to accomplish His, the Father's work. This is great on lots of levels. This is sermon series in and of itself kind of greatness level. It's not the first time, it's not the, excuse me, I should say, it's not the last time we're going to hear things like this. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to hear stuff like this. And that won't be the last time. We're going to hear maybe in its, in its greatness, maybe one of the unmatched places where Jesus talks about this is, is in his high priestly prayer in John 17, and the Father and the Son and the work. But I at least for now want you to say, Jesus... I don't know what I want you to say. <laughs> I want you to see that the Father and Son are doing something on earth that is pre-planned, pre-purposed, and the Son is tenaciously, wonderfully, awesomely committed to His Father and His Father's work. Gives us some insight into their relationship. If we were to look at other passages, we would see that the Holy Spirit is involved as well, like in Ephesians chapter 1. How about this? Let's be impressed with the fact that before the Son ever even comes to earth, or, or we could say it this way, the reason He comes to earth is to do His Father's work. 
there's already been agreement to provide redemption for Nicodemuses and Samaritans, right? And everything in between. We could be amazed at this on its own level and realize that the, that the triune God has this kind of unique relationship and they've purposed and planned and pre-purposed to do these things and that should cause us to say, wow, worship. But then we, we enjoy it as well because we're actually in on it because it's for us. And then we even see, if we're going to put it that way, that the son is committed to doing the work of his father, which, by the way, we will see time and time again, is for us. And if Jesus is committed like he's committed, you should be encouraged. It should make you happy. Priority number one for me as the son is to do the work of my father who sent me. I'm so radically committed to that. It's going to happen no matter what. And you should hear that is, that means love for us. That means assurance for us. That means my assurance of salvation doesn't start with when I believed in Jesus, although that was an awesome thing. And I get assurance from believing in Jesus. But it's part of a plan that even goes before that. This is awesome. Striking reality 13. Jesus is a loyal son. So I want to talk more about that. We won't this morning. 14. Striking reality 14. Jesus is a perfect savior. And I would like to relate those two. Because he's a loyal son, he's a perfect savior. So tempted to add more, but the numbering won't work. <laughs> Perhaps this will come up again, I'm not sure, but at least observe for now that uh, when we're talking about this in, in verse 34, it is His work. It's the fa- Redemption is the Father's work. Through the Son, and we could look elsewhere, applied by the Spirit. Just just remember, it's the work of God. And that does help us to know that it's not ours. Okay? He's the Savior, the Rescuer. We're not in partnership. It's what He does. He's the perfect Savior. Now let's keep going in verse 35. Do you not say... So we, we need to transition a little bit here. Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. How many of you have ever said that? We have some farmers here, so perhaps, but apparently it's a common saying in first century Middle East, agrarian culture. Do you not say? The implied answer is yes, you do. You do say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest, right? We understand the idea. You're going to sow, you're going to plant, you're going to do all the stuff that you need to do, and then the harvest comes, and he says, four months later, common saying, 35 goes on to say, look, 
I tell you, lift up your eyes. Look, see, is what he's saying. And see that the fields are white for harvest. That's not how things work in agriculture. But he's saying, this is how things are now. This is exceptional. This is extraordinary. And as we're going to see, he's not talking about physical harvesting. He's talking about spiritual harvesting. He's going to talk about eternal, the fruit of eternal life. Now, what will make this even more impactful is if we read it through the lens of Old Testament prophecy when there's going to be great spiritual harvest. When Messiah comes and He brings deliverance, there will be abundance and there will be blessing and there will be great harvesting, but it's a spiritual kind of harvesting and that is what the whole Old Testament's been waiting for. Jesus is saying, this is it. Because I'm the one. Now, you're, most of you, not all, but most of you are familiar with some of those messianic prophecies. You're familiar, if you've been around much, or around Christians, Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. See it on Christmas cards. You see it on banners. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, Right? And it talks about the government will rest on his shoulders and we're talking about in the line of David. Now I'm paraphrasing. It's a messianic prophecy. We don't normally read the verses before and after, but with that locked in your mind, knowing it's a messianic prophecy, it's speaking about Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 9, 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice. How about this? They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Ah, okay, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's used in a spiritual light here with Jesus, but notice there's dots being connected from Isaiah. This is the great, extraordinary, long-awaited messianic harvest where there's joy and abundance and rejoicing. This is awesome. This is what we've all been waiting for. Thirty-six says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. See, he's, he's speaking spiritually, not physically, so that, the, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And remember where he is. He's in Samaria. Samaritans saved? They're part of a cult. That's right, they're part of a cult. Samaritans saved. This is what we've been waiting for, Jews and Gentiles. It's no wonder people like the Apostle Paul would say, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. He's the Savior of all. He's the Savior of the world. Verse 37, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He doesn't tell us exactly who the others are. We could say the others who have labored would be the prophets in the Old Testament. They labored. We could say John the Baptist, he labored, preaching repentance, right? And he's saying to his disciples, now you're connecting the dots for people, and I'm connecting the dots for people, and the harvest is going to come in. And it's, it's spiritual harvest. It's the harvest of eternal life. And this is extraordinary. And this is awesome. This is unprecedented. Ah, that's a good word I should have used earlier. 
yeah, this is it. But he doesn't specifically say who the others are who have worked. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think the biggest and ultimate workers, according to verse 34, are the father and the son. In bigger context, let's not cheat the spirit. The work is done by God. And we enjoy the harvest. We enjoy the fruit. Striking reality number 15. Jesus is the bringer of the joyous spiritual harvest of prophecy. Sorry for all those words. Jesus is the bringer of the joyous spiritual harvest of prophecy. He's the one. Only have a handful of verses left. Let's do this. 39, many Samaritans, here we go, harvest, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. There it is. That's why, that's why Jesus came, so that that would happen. They believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. But notice they are believing. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Striking reality 16. Jesus is indeed the savior of the world. Everyone who will be saved is going to be saved by him, Savior of the world. Even bad people like Samaritans, Savior of the world. Even quote-unquote good people like Nicodemus, who isn't so good, Savior of the world. We begin by talking about how we need to see ourselves in Nicodemus' shoes, Samaritan shoes, to not see ourselves as the hero, Jesus, even though we all love being the hero. If anything, we're the antagonists. We're the opposers. But I didn't speak as fully as I must. And I want you to know and remember, while we should identify with the sinners, not with Jesus... It's not an either or because Jesus himself came and identified with sinners. You see? He became our representative and did all the right things for us in our place as our substitute, then went to the cross and was treated as if he did all the wrong things in our place as our representative to bring atonement and forgiveness. And he then is raised from the dead, the victor, on behalf of his people. So I want to invite you to identify with Jesus if you're believing in him. Because, not because of your works, but because of his, but because he came and he's the one when he was raised from the dead who is the firstborn. Ah, that tells us something. 
not the only born, the firstborn among many. You see, his story needs to be his story. But we enter into his story and become a part of his story because he loves us and he represents us and does everything for us. Isn't it good? It's better than I even thought. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ. Thank you that he is the hero and he is the savior and he is the propitiation for our sins and all of these wonderful things. But thank you that he is for us. He did this because he loved us and gave himself up for us. Thank you that we can be reminded today that, that, that even a very immoral, religiously misguided and confused and wrong person like Samaritans could be saved. And as we've been recently reminded that even self-righteous, blind, spiritually lost people like Nicodemus could be saved as well. Lord, may we find ourselves trusting in Jesus and not in ourselves. Indeed, he's a matchless, wonderful Savior. May we want to serve him and honor him because of what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.